You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. I appreciate joy. Hey, welcome. Um, we're going to get into drugs. We've got to talk about Orlando just for a second. Um, nightclub shooting, 50 people dead, 50 more injured. Um, let's pray. Jesus, help. Please, God. God, would you bring grace and peace and joy and, and just your comfort? Jesus, we need you. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, yeah, do keep that situation in your prayers. It's tragic. Well, hello. Welcome to church. It's good to see you guys. Uh, I'm James, and we are concluding a four-part series on money, sex, power, and drugs. So this is the last week you get to talk about drugs. If you're new, you're first coming into this, um, we've got all three of those messages previously. They're up on our website as well. And then here in the coming weeks, if I get around to it, um, I come up here with all this manuscript stuff. Um, I'm going to compile all of that into kind of like a director's cut extended edition version of all of this. So, and we're going to just kind of release it as like a free ebook. Um, so, if you want to kind of get more of this content, you're welcome to do that. We want to push out as much of this stuff as we possibly can. Uh, we're going to send it out via email. If you subscribe to the New Life Weekly, you can uh, sign up for that online. You'll get one of the first to get notified of when that comes around. So, uh, I'm excited about that. Um, thank you guys for letting me. Um, participate with you in this little adventure. I appreciate a lot of the feedback that you guys have given me over the last month or so, and I'm grateful and honored for the opportunity that I have uh, to be able to do this, so thank you. appreciate it. Um, As always, we're going to talk about ground rules and the big idea. So the big idea today is to see the gospel as motivation for moderation and sobriety, as well as power to help overcome addiction. The gospel empowers us or motivates us for a lifestyle of moderation and sobriety and empowers us to overcome addiction. And it's a a source of our strength, and it's a means by which I think we can experience freedom. Uh, So that's the big idea. And uh, the ground rules, as always, is that I'm a learner, not an expert. Uh, This one, more than probably any of the three messages, has just scared me to death. Um, I want to do honor to, obviously, a very sensitive subject, while also acknowledging that our church is one that so embraces recovery. And I want to uh, honor everybody, no matter where they're at in their process. Um, Also, we want to explore this together. As you see there, I'm always going to give you my email address. You can reach out on social media. That's my Twitter handle. You can get me on Facebook. If you have any questions, points of clarification, things you want to explore further, thoughts that we didn't hit on, uh, please do let me know as well. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into the things. All right, Jesus, please have mercy on us. Have mercy on us and give us grace to be able to change. May we be a people that walk in freedom because of you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm sitting in my office this week and I'm like, all right. I told him I was going to talk about alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, and opioid-based painkillers. And so I start looking through the Bible for where it talks about all four of those things. And I, I didn't come up with any verses at all. Um, <laughs> And, and that's, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not, because there are a thousand things in our lives 
that are very real and relevant, but Scripture doesn't speak to at all. And so we're going to, what we're going to try to do here is try to find principles out of Scripture that we can then infer from there into these other very specific areas that we're going to deal with. And so uh, the principle that we're going to start with is this, that disciples of Jesus embrace a lifestyle of sobriety for the sake of gospel effectiveness, personal holiness, and community building. Let me say that again. That the disciples of Jesus embrace a lifestyle of sobriety for the sake of gospel effectiveness, personal holiness, and community building. And here's, why I'm gonna, here's how I'm going to build a case for you out of Scripture. Um, this week, um, I, I sat through, and I'm looking at, the Bible does talk actually quite a bit about alcohol. And so I went through this week as we're looking at alcohol, and I just, it uses the word wine. And so I looked up, and there's 221 instances of the word wine that occurs throughout the Bible. And so I spent about an hour this week going through all of those and then trying to categorize them into either positive or negative inferences or references that we can then draw about how the Bible speaks to wine. And the first thing that you need to know is that there's roughly equal measure on both the positive and the negative side. So the Bible speaks about both the goodness of alcohol and its dangers. Um, let me just give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, let me summarize for you here. In Deuteronomy 7.13, the increase in the quality and the quantity of wine is part of the blessing of obedience for God's people. Proverbs 3 says, that's bursting with wine is a promised blessing to those who honor the Lord with their resources. And this makes sense in an agrarian society where there was no currency. You became wealthy through the outgrowth of your crops. And part of the crops that they grew in the Middle East were grapes and wine. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, in fact, wine was a central feature of Jewish life. You're going to see um, wine being a central part of the sacrificial system. God invited his people not only to make wine, but to offer it up in celebration for the feast days and as a, give, as a worship sacrifice to him. It was always seen fairly positively. Of course, if you move into the New Testament, most famously, you see Jesus, his very first miracle is our God is the kind of God who gets invited to parties, by the way. So he gets invited to a big wedding, and they run out of wine, which um, culturally would be, I mean, just a ridiculous no-no. It would be a tremendous source of shame for the host. And so Jesus pulls some people together, and he gets over a hundred gallons of water in these big pots, and he turns it into wine. In fact, not just any wine, but like really good vintage wine. And then You'll notice that one of the things that he does, that um, we've got baptism, we've got communion. Communion is one of the things that we are told to as Christians to celebrate as a remembrance of God and his work on our behalf. And what is it? It's a feast comprised of bread and wine. So the Bible speaks fairly positively in all these instances about the appropriate use of wine as a point of celebration and worship. In fact, I just saw something on Twitter this week where the Pope, uh, of all things, this is translated out of the Italian, but basically he says, wine is for celebration and the kingdom of God is a party. However, the Bible is not naive about the dangers of wine and alcohol. 
and strong drink, and it speaks with shocking regularity and intensity about the dangers of drunkenness. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, our buddy Noah, after the flood, comes out of the ark and he plants a vineyard. He then harvests the grapes in the vineyard, ferments it into wine, drinks the wine, gets drunk, and then lies naked in his tent. And what follows afterwards is a source of great shame for both he and his family. Uh, Equally so in Genesis chapter 19, a lot, you may remember him from the fiasco with Sodom and Gomorrah. Also following that instance, Lot's daughters, in an effort to keep the family line going, come up with a plan to get their father drunk on wine and commit incest with him in order to keep the family line Again, more sources of shame. Uh, In the wisdom literature of the Bible, especially Proverbs, are very informative for us here. So here's just a sampling of the warnings against drunkenness. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, that doesn't necessarily say that alcohol is sinful. It simply reflects on something that we've probably all experienced to one degree, that if you get too drunk, you get sloppy and you do things that you're later ashamed of. Proverbs 23, be not among the drunkards or the gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Proverbs 23, a little bit later, the last half of the chapter is actually this really fascinating, um, almost a parable. It describes the person who lingers long over red wine while it sparkles in the cup, and it describes that person as like a drunken sailor asleep at the top of a mast of a ship in a storm, reeling and rocking back and forth, completely uncontrolled and uncontrollable, wanting only to awake again that they may seek another drink. Uh, The New Testament rule will repeatedly and consistently disallow drunkenness as a lifestyle that's consistent with faithfully following Jesus. Luke chapter 21, Jesus will teach his disciples in light of the last day. That is, that Jesus endeavors for his disciples and those who follow after him to live in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. And so how should we live? He says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Later on in the New Testament, Paul, the great apostle, will write back to his uh, church in Ephesus, a major metropolitan area, and he will describe, he will say for them uh, that you should not be drunk with wine, rather you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there, right there, man, is a whole sermon into itself, but we're going to keep moving. 1 Timothy 3, in describing the ways that church leaders should behave themselves, Uh, they are to set an example for the believers in purity and holiness, and they are not to be addicted to much wine. So how do we reconcile these particular things here? Because on one hand, you've got scriptures that speak very positively and affirmatively around alcohol as a point of celebration for the people of God. And then you've got a whole other set of scriptures that rightly describe alcohol for what it is, um, a source of dissipation, uh, poverty, and shame. And so what should we make of these passages? Uh, Some have taken the position of what we call an abstentionist. That's a fancy word. Basically, it means to abstain, drink no alcohol whatsoever. Um, uh, These are... um, a uh, well-known pastor, if you guys know John MacArthur, he's a, he's a pretty strong abstentionist. Um, anybody who's in the Baptist background or Assemblies of God will be very familiar that alcohol is just simply not something that a good Christian does. And then on the other side of things is a group of people called uh, the moderationists. 
Others look at this constellation of passages that we've just referenced, and along with an appeal to our freedom in Christ, and they say both for the sake of reaching the culture, right? And this is especially relevant for those of us in Birvana, aka the Portland metro area, <laughs> that we're the microbrew capital of the world. And so how should we as Christians, just for the sake of, like, say, engaging non-Christians, if your policy was never to step foot in an, al- in a, in an establishment that ever serves alcohol, uh, does that put you at a disadvantage in your witness to people? Or does by doing so also disadvantage your witness? I, these, are, these are serious questions. And, um, and in some places, I was reading this week about a church out in Troutdale, which is kind of both Portland beer fauna and then the, like the Hood River wine country area, and Troutdale's right in the middle, and they decided that they were going to be a church that embraced, like have wine tasting at church, because they thought that that was a way that it, it was very much a part of their culture, okay? So what are we going to do here? Um, which one's correct? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> And I'm not just dodging the issue here. Um, this is one of those areas that I think you can arrive at your positions and you can hold that conviction um, and still be in good fellowship with others that do um, not the same. Because the one thing that nobody is saying here is that alcohol itself, though it possesses a tremendous capacity for abuse, that alcohol is in itself a sin. I think the same is true about money, sex, and power, right? That money, sex, and power, like drugs... Um, can be things that are in themselves morally neutral, but the attitude that we bring towards them and how we practice them and the thing that we're desiring from them is often what gives it its moral flavor. Um, Martin Luther, the man who ignited the Protestant Reformation way back in the 16th century, a tremendous church hero and also a renowned brewer of beer, he remarked on this front, he says, do not suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused. Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? <laughs> I think there's some wisdom there. <laughs> See, the principle at hand here is not so much what is being done, that is whether you choose to drink or not to drink, but it's why it's being done. And so there's two other principles here that I want to kind of bring to the fore, the glory of God and the good of others. I think first, and I'm just going to state this baldly and don't have time to explain it, but our first and highest priority in life is to glorify God. There's a whole sermon series on that, I'm sure, but just grant me the point that the first and your, your life's purpose is to glorify God. Paul will write with respect to how we glorify God with the things we take into our bodies. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul is, and there's a, there's, a, there's a background passage there about meat sacrifice to idols, which we won't get into, but Paul is at least hinting at the fact that how you consume substances, food, meat, drink, drugs, has an impact on, that is, that is something that either glorifies God or does not. And Paul's admonition is, so whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So a better question isn't so much, say, with respect to alcohol, can I fill in the blank, drink or not? I think the better question is, how does my drinking or my lack of drinking help glorify God? So the second principle is the good of others. The second highest priority we have is to serve our fellow man. Now, you may look at this constellation of passages around alcohol and agree that, yes, 
drunkenness is prohibited, but certainly not enjoying one or two beers an evening. And you'll say, that's part of my Christian liberty. It's something that I enjoy. And I'm glorifying God by appreciating the good work that he has made through these very skilled craftsmen that give us this wonderful beer. If, there's in, if there is a sin, probably with beer, it's to drink bad beer. Because, <laughs> especially in this area, okay? So you may feel like you enjoy a liberty to be able to do that or to smoke or to toke or to pop a pill, but this does not necessarily mean you ought to. Again, Paul is helpful for us in his letter to the Corinthians. The context here in 1 Corinthians 6, he's discussing sexual immorality, but I think the point is well taken for our context. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I want you to note the quotation marks there. Do you notice how the phrase, all things are lawful for me, is placed in quotations? That's the editors helping us understand that when Paul writes back to the church in Corinth, what he's doing is he's quoting a common proverb that the Corinthians would use in order to give themselves license to do basically whatever they pleased. And when Paul writes back to them, he doesn't confront that issue. He doesn't deny that all things could be lawful for them, but watch how he Watch how he frames it. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. There is no law that prevents me from pouring gasoline on my house plants, but that does not mean it's helpful. So there's a difference between what you can do and what you should do, is what Paul's getting. And then notice the next phrase, all things are lawful for me, sure, true, but I will not be dominated by anything. In your liberty, you may choose to embrace behaviors that ultimately leads not to further freedom, but rather to captivity, to being caught in a snare of addiction. As Christians, you have the freedom to drink and to smoke cigarettes and to smoke marijuana and to take painkillers if need be. None of these things, if obtained and used through the appropriate legal channels, is, especially here in Oregon, either illegal, but it doesn't mean that you can just walk down that road without critically reflecting on where the end of that road may lead and what impact it will have on your relationship with God and your ability to serve your fellow man. So let's take some of this thinking there and then apply it to the same kind of thing around cigarettes, right? Um, it's worth noting that smoking has dramatically decreased over the decades. Over half of the male population in the 1960s smoked cigarettes on a regular basis. That's now been almost cut in half. Same thing with the use of teen smoking over the years. And this is largely responsible for a really aggressive public education campaign. And we've been taxing the bejesus out of cigarettes for the last decades. It makes it more difficult. And we've seen every time an increase on tax goes up, sales of cigarettes go down. Um, It still remains incredibly deadly, though. Um, It's the root cause of almost a half a million deaths in 2014 in the U.S. alone. If you can read that scale, you see tobacco there on the left is responsible for almost 450,000 deaths, followed by alcohol, opioid-based painkillers, all three of which are perfectly legal. Then heroin, uh, benzodiazepines is the drug that's in a lot of anti-anxiety medication, cocaine, and then marijuana, you'll note, zero deaths. Center for Disease Control estimates that cigarette smoking is linked to nearly one out of every five deaths in the U.S. a year. It's the world's biggest killer worldwide. Uh, Basically, 
if you choose to smoke, you're choosing to die five years earlier than you would have otherwise. So if smoking tobacco is really that dangerous, uh, both for the smoker and for those around them, you know, why still do it? Well, if you don't smoke, it's easy to have that attitude. But if you do smoke, then what's likely happened is that if you, if you smoke at least one cigarette a day, the age at which you started smoking cigarettes was about 15, which means it's been with you for almost your entire life. And contrary to the claims of many, well, especially formally, but cigarette company manufacturers, cigarettes are incredibly addictive. And so you may have spent an entire lifetime trying to quit. Or for some who have been caught in heavier drugs, all else being equal, probably better to smoke a cigarette than to smoke crack cocaine. Um, for others, it's just kind of a part of your world. I grew up washing dishes in restaurants, and every single waitstaff person that I ever worked with smoked. And the same is probably true in a lot of the manual trades around construction, excavation, roofing. If you're in one of those trades and you don't smoke, it's likely that you're around people who either smoke or chew. And, it's, um, and so just out of peer pressure, it's often an easy habit to pick up. But maybe more pointedly, have you guys noticed that we have ashtrays out of each one of our exits? Um, why is it that the church does that? Um, are we condoning tobacco use? No. Um, but one thing that I love about this church was um, there was a big old sign. We replaced it a couple years ago because it was getting worn. But do you guys remember that big sign that faced 99E on the backside of our youth center? It said New Life Four Square Church, and then had, it had a three phrases. A place to, anybody remember these phrases? A place to belong, a place to believe, and a place to become. A place to belong, a place to believe, and a place to become. Those three words, belong, believe, become, were intentionally chosen because it reflected a philosophy of ministry that we have here at this church, that belonging precedes believing. We do not expect you to get yourself cleaned up first in order to come to this church. One of the reasons that I think that those, that phrase was chosen in that order is to reflect a desire that we have to place no obstacle in front of anyone who wants to encounter Jesus. If you smoke, you're welcome here. If you smell like smoke, you're welcome here. If you need to smoke, you're welcome here, and we've got a place to put your butts because we also care about having a nice campus. And I hope this message is clear. You don't need to get yourself cleaned up first in order to come to church here. Jesus will meet you where you are at, and it is in the belonging. It is in that belonging, that sense of being cared for, taken in, seen, recognized, valued, and affirmed for who you are, even if that, that's where we get changed. You remember in the Gospels that Jesus is described as being a friend of tax collectors and, and, and drunkards? Gee, that wasn't a phrase that Jesus used. That was something that his enemies used to describe him, to discredit him. But here's what I love. I don't think that Jesus ever got up today and he's like, I'm going to my friend the drunk's house. I'm going to my friend's house. And in that friendship and in that encounter with Jesus, people were changed. Um, if you smoke, we love you. And you're welcome here. And we're praying that as you get a sense of belonging and as Jesus grips ever more part of your heart, there may come a day where you feel compelled to put down your cigarettes and put away the can of chew. And when that day comes, we will be alongside 
to help you. One of the things I love about this church is that we're a recovery-focused church. That building over here, building two, only thing it's used for is recovery ministry. It, there's, gosh, Dave Metzger, are you in here? Can you help me out with this? I know we have meetings at least six days a week, and I think there's probably 10 meetings a week that happens. There's about 170 people who meet on this campus for recovery ministry every single week. And I love that. And if you're here today, out of an AA or NA group, you're welcome, and we love you. Let's talk about marijuana. Anybody just a little bit freaked out if you're a parent now that they've legalized marijuana and you're really not sure what you're going to try to tell your kids about this thing? Like, I've got young children. They will never know a world where marijuana was illegal. They will grow up thinking about marijuana likely the same way many of us grew up thinking about cigarettes. Like, so this is an issue that I think represents something that needs a little bit of reflection. So chances are you've had an encounter with marijuana at some point in your life. Um, and for the record, and please believe me, I'm not lying, I have never smoked pot. And not like in the Bill Clinton, I smoked but I didn't inhale kind of way. Like I've literally, <laughs> I've never ingested the substance in any way. But I grew up in Homer, Alaska. We have a bumper sticker in Homer that says, we are a quaint drinking village with a fishing problem. Um, <laughs> substance abuse was fairly common where I grew up, and so my life always kind of skated around the fringes of pot culture growing up, and so I think I remember being about like maybe 17 or so, and I'm hanging out with my buddy Sam, and Sam had this really sweet setup because his parents had basically stopped parenting him, and they allowed him to live in the basement of the home, so he had the entire basement to himself, so here's all of us dudes hanging out, we're like shooting pool, pretending to be in a band, doing whatever kids will do, right, and then suddenly I look, and like a little plastic baggie and a glass pipe comes out. And Sam's parents are upstairs, and if you've ever been around marijuana once being smoked, it has a very distinctive and pungent odor. It smells a little bit like skunk. And so you really can't, like, smoke in the same house as your mom and dad, right? But that doesn't stop people who want to smoke marijuana. And so the, the, here was the idea. We'll get, we'll get a vacuum cleaner... We'll turn the vacuum cleaner on, and then we'll exhale into the intake pipe of the vacuum cleaner to try to capture all of the... Like, okay, this is the kind of idiocy that happens. These are the thoughts you think when you smoke too much pot. Be totally fine. Nobody will know. The Los Angeles Times published this headline just recently. It says, long-time marijuana use might make you a loser. This article is a summary of some research that came out of the University of California, Davis, in addition with Duke. Um, they'd studied about 1,000 people in New Zealand over the course of several decades, and um, they discovered that um, they found that those who smoked more than four times a week, quote, ended up in a lower social class than their parents, with lower pain, less skilled, and less prestigious jobs than those who are not regular cannabis smokers. Regular cannabis users experienced downward social mobility and more financial problems, such as trouble with debt and cash flow, than those who did not. And I think this makes sense, kind of on the broadest of levels. I mean, smoking four times a week, um, you're going to be stoned on the couch for dozens of hours each week. And from that position, it's highly unlikely that you will also discover the cure for cancer or write the next great American novel. Like, 
generally speaking, a lifestyle of consistent and habitual marijuana use is not also consistent with accomplishing great things and advancing the kingdom of God. And just a quick note, well, you may be saying, well, four times a week is a little excessive. I just smoke recreationally, like on the weekend. Well, here's a bit of a danger with this. Let's say you've got a job, and um, last Friday, in the privacy of your own home, you purchased some marijuana perfectly legally, and you enjoyed it in the comfort of your own home. It's a perfectly legal act. Then, two weeks later, you're at work, and you, trip, you, you tip your forklift over. And so an accident protocol comes into place, and they administer a urine analysis test to everybody involved in the accident. Guess what's going to happen? That urine analysis will come back and show THC in your system. You were not high when the forklift tipped. But it will still show that you were under the influence of a drug, and if they have a zero-tolerance workplace policy, chances are you will lose your job right then and there. So please, friends, for the sake of a little weekend recreation, do not compromise your livelihood. But this is where we come back to the sake of kind of the why of Christian behavior. If they've made it legal now in Oregon, and they've done it now in, I think, 27 states either have a recreational or medicinal use marijuana uh, laws, and likely speaking, just based on where the legislation is going, it's likely that within a decade, the federal mandate will probably be lifted as well. So we've got some thinking to do. I think we're all in this haze of adjusting to a world where marijuana is now legalized. And it was easy, especially for my parents, to look at me and say, James, don't smoke pot, it's illegal. And it didn't matter what argument I could come up with for why smoking pot was like, it's just a green herb, God made it. Like, what's the big deal? It doesn't matter, it's still illegal. Okay, so now that that is out of the picture, what? Right? What motivation do you have for not smoking pot? And also the inverse. If you choose to, what motivation do you have for smoking pot? Um, Two notes on this point. First, the gospel calls us away from sin and into freedom. This is so important. I want you to consider Jesus not simply as your, like, ticket to get out of hell. He's not a fire escape ladder. He has saved you, yes. He has taken on every one of your sins and forgiven them. But he has also saved us away from a lifestyle of self-destruction into something else. And this is the important part where a lot of people get missed. Is that Jesus saves you not simply from a lifestyle of debauchery and drunkenness, but into something far greater. Jesus is telling a story. There's a grand story that God has in play to rescue and redeem the creation that he has made from the clutches of the enemy of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the realm of light. And you, you, Christian, we as a church have an opportunity to, motivated by the gospel, not simply say no to things because that's what we feel good Christians should do, but rather be motivated not simply by the negation of something, but by the positive affirmation of participating with the kingdom of God to joyfully pursue and advance things that require a lot of work, a lot of dedication, a lot of energy, and a lot of sobriety, none of which is consistent with heavy habitual marijuana use. So if you understand the gospel, I'm praying that you will be motivated, even though you may be, in your mind, legally and ethically free to smoke pot as much as you please, that you could put that down, like Paul says, it may be lawful for you, but it is not helpful and turn towards something that motivates you to the degree 
um, that you recognize that your body is the only one you're going to get, and it is the means by which God will change the world. Your hands, your feet, your mind deserve to be as sharp and as effective as possible for the sake of the gospel, for the work of the poor, and for the evangel- evangelization of the world. So um, the other reason is uh, I think the, the, the data is fairly conclusive. Um, it's bad for your finances. It doesn't make you an excellent employee. It probably takes you out of the running for promotion and advancement. Um, so just be mindful and be careful. Let's t- lastly talk on uh, opioid-based painkillers. There are over 200 million prescriptions written for painkillers each year, which is enough for every adult in America. Uh, these are drugs like Oxycontin, uh, Percocet, Vicodin. Uh, they share the same chemical similarities as heroin and morphine. And taken as prescribed, especially in the short term, um, they're very reliable ways to manage pain. Almost anybody who's had any sort of surgery um, has probably been prescribed some of these drugs. Um, these are especially common in areas where, um, especially in blue-collar manual labor work. Um, the only, I don't have any experience with these. The only time I had surgery, I had my wisdom teeth out as a high schooler, and they gave me some, like, anesthesia, and they're like, count backwards to 100, and I got to, like, 90, <laughs> you know. It was very weird. Woke up later. Um... But when taken inappropriately, um, like you take too many at once, um, it will lead to respiratory failure and death. Um, and I want to show you that graph again. 19,000 people in 2014 died from overdoses of opioid-based painkillers, which is like a factor of 10 greater than how it was about 10 or 15 years ago. We've seen tremendous increase in not only the number of prescriptions given, and there's a whole story there, um, but also the amount that these drugs have the potential to be abused. Um, increasingly, we're hearing stories about young people getting hooked on drugs, not from the drug dealer on the corner, but from what's in their parents' medicine cabinet. So here's the bottom line with painkillers for me, is if you need them, take them. But please hear me. Please be very cautious and mindful about the dangers that they represent and the addictive capacities that they have in them. And when you don't need them anymore, please promptly dispose of them crush them up in a powder, mix it with cat litter, and throw it away. Do not, for the love of God, toss it down the toilet. That stuff gets into our water system, and there's no filter in the world that can take it out. With all four of these issues, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, and painkillers, all four are perfectly legal in the eyes of the state. And so they represent very interesting decisions for those of us as Christians to make, especially in light of, and if you're anything like me, you likely have someone close to you who you know who has struggled mightily with addiction. Where do we balance our Christian liberty versus the desire to not cause a brother to stumble? How do we appropriately enjoy versus responsibly abstain? These are questions that I cannot create a rule for you to follow because the Holy Spirit guides in a situation-by-situation basis. For me, the bottom line is this. As I mentioned, the gospel is the thing that drives and compels us towards a lifestyle of sobriety for the sake of effectiveness. Friends, the world needs Christians who are clear-headed, well-spoken, excellent workers, 
to be a witness in the world around us. And to one degree or another, when we overindulge in substances, we limit our witness in the workplace and in our homes. And we open doors to tremendous devastation. I have a family member, um, a felony three-time DUI. And the pain of having to go and visit somebody in penitentiary over the holidays and watching the way that it affects relationships. I'm not naive or immune to the effect of what happens when especially alcohol abuse goes wrong. And I just want to speak, I'm not, I just want to speak to a moment for those of us who are struggling, who are on that edge uh, with alcohol abuse. I, please know that you're loved. Okay? Addiction is such a thing that that causes such pain and rift and, and the temptation, especially for those who are in a family with the person who's addicted, is to push and to create boundaries and walls and, 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 and deadlines and ultimatums. And, and, and there may be a place for that, but there's also a place for love of a feeling that you're embraced, that you're welcomed here. And that doesn't give us license just to, not, to be okay with our addictions. I really encourage you, the first step to getting help is to admitting that you need help. And so I'm praying that the Holy Spirit works in all of us as a people to say the very scary things that says, I need help. And then the last one, to have a group of people who will come alongside you, who will participate in your recovery, who will help you along those ways. Friends, the stakes are high. This is the only body, this is the only life that we get. Let's take care of them well. Let's be mindful of the dangers that lie as we go down these roads. Let's be gracious to those who suffer from alcohol and other abuses. And let's try to point people back towards Jesus who saves and redeems us from the bottom up and from the inside out. He's the only hope that I have and he's the hope that I have for all of us that we as a community would be a people who care deeply for all of the addicts because God knows I'm one, it's just not to these things. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you a lot. God, help us, especially for those of us as parents trying to navigate this world on behalf of our kids, to be kind and gracious and informed and spirit-led and gospel-powered. God, I pray for my friends here also who are struggling with abuse and addiction and dependency. God, I pray that you break those chains in the name of Jesus. Would you come in, Lord? Lord, would you just reorient affection and desire, God? Would you replace their need for that with the desire for you? God, would you be the all-sufficient and satisfying one? God, would you please be king and, and, and friend Lord, I pray for just an increased outpouring of effectiveness for our AA and NA ministries. Lord, I pray that people would find freedom and healing and means and measures that they've never experienced before. God, would this church be renowned as a place of healing and wholeness, as a hospital for the sick and the dying and the broken and the drunk. God, would we be intentional to welcome with open arms those here who need you. So, Lord, come. We need you here today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.